Okay, John chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 11. Now, if you remember, Jesus in John chapter 8 had had a confrontation with the Jewish leaders, and through that they rejected him. And it was at that point that they decided they wanted to kill him. And then John in chapter 9, he healed a blind man that had been blind from birth. Well, that upset them because the man that he healed, he healed him on the Sabbath. So again, they become even more upset. But what Jesus did is he left the blind man after he healed him, had him go down to the pool of Siloam. And then after the blind man had met with the Jewish leaders, Jesus comes back after that. And he basically lets him know who he is, that he is the Messiah. And we saw in that text that, that the man believed and worshipped, came to faith. Well, from that point on, when that man came to faith, Jesus begins to preach. So I think the blind man's there. I think there are Jewish leaders there. I think there are a bunch of people kind of around, and it's outside the temple. And he begins to preach, and he begins to talk about an analogy, a, a metaphor, a word picture of a shepherd and his sheep. And if you remember, we talked about two kind of sheepfolds. There was one which was found in a village. It had high walls. The shepherds would bring their sheep, and they'd put their sheep in at night, and then they'd go sleep. And there was a door that would be locked, and there'd be somebody to guard the door, a doorkeeper. That was the first kind of sheepfold. And then there was a second kind of sheepfold, and that was out in the countryside where a shepherd would have to build it himself, maybe at a rock. But it had no door, so the shepherd himself would become the door. And if we remember, in the first 10 verses, Jesus points to himself both as the true shepherd of Israel, he is the shepherd of the true sheep of Israel, but he's also the door. He is the only way to know God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in John 10, verse 9, I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and he'll find pasture. And so Jesus very clearly said, I am the door. But today, Jesus is going to refer to himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd. And what we'll see in the text today is why we as his sheep can call him the good shepherd. So let's take a look. Verses 11 through 15 is where we'll start. It says, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." So what makes Jesus the good shepherd? The first thing that we see here in this first section is Jesus as the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. Jesus as the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. Jesus knows his own, and he willingly lays down his life. And he begins right there in the beginning, I am the good shepherd. And so Real quickly, he already identified himself as the true shepherd. We see this in verse 2 in John 10, 2. He says, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Also, he said he was the true shepherd in verse 5. A stranger, they being his sheep, simply will not follow, but they'll flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So he's the true shepherd that the sheep, his sheep, will follow. But here, Jesus gets more specific 
And he says very, very clearly that he is the good shepherd. And he says it, I am the good shepherd. That's very important. Again, that's one of those I am statements that we looked at before. It's known as the tetragrammaton. This is the kind of statement where Jesus says, I am God. Because God said of himself, I am that I am. And so Jesus, in different ways, positions himself and proclaims himself to be God. And this is another way that he does this. This is the fifth I am statement that we've seen so far. He said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. He said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8 and also verse 9, verse 5. He said, before Abraham was born, I am in John chapter 8, verse 58. I am the door. We saw that last week in John 10, 7, and 9. And then here, I am the good shepherd. That that word good is the Greek word kalos, and that means good or noble. Uh, it has kind of a moral standing. He's, he's righteous. He, he's good. He's noble. But it also means beautiful. It means lovely. Our Lord is the good, noble, beautiful, lovely, good shepherd. It means he's unique. He's one of a kind. There's no one like him. Jesus, being God in the flesh, is the good shepherd. Now, Peter gives him another designation. Peter called him the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. Peter said that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd over all other under-shepherds, where I would be an under-shepherd, and you as a minister of the gospel would be an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. But Jesus here, as the good shepherd, we need to understand He is the good shepherd whether or not He does anything, right? Being God in the flesh, He is absolutely good. He's perfect. He's holy. But He did do something. And so He shows us and He tells us what He did. He said, the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Now, in the picture of of a a shepherd out in the field, a, a shepherd would have to fight. They'd have to fight the elements. They'd have to fight against wild animals. They'd have to fight against thieves and robbers. So there, there has to be, I guess, a willingness to give your life in case there's danger. But Jesus, as the good shepherd, he went far beyond just willing to risk his life. It says he gave. He gives. He lays down. He willingly submitted his life for our life. And the phrase laid down is unique to John's writing here, and it always refers to voluntary, sacrificial death. And the point that Jesus is making right here is that he, as the good shepherd, willingly gives his life for the sheep. Now, this is obvious because he says it four different times. He says it in verse 11, he says it in verse 15, he says it in verse 17, he says it in verse 18. But what he's doing here is he's contrasting himself with those religious leaders. And we know that he already called them thieves and robbers, and he's going to use another designation here as someone who's just a hired hand. You see, a hired hand's not going to give their life for the sheep. But he, as the true shepherd, as the good shepherd, is going to do that. And and there's a number of things that we have to understand about Jesus' death that truly makes him the good shepherd. And the first thing is that Jesus' death, it was voluntary, We cannot ever think that Jesus' death just somehow was an accident. 
or just happened by chance. We must understand that this was planned before the very foundation of the world. His death is the turning point in history. This is what gives us eternal life. Without his death, we have nothing. We are men and women most miserable. Now, Peter spoke about this, this preordained plan of God, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to Peter. Peter said, this man, that is Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This was God's ordained plan. It was announced right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it goes all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the end into the book of Revelation. This is one of the main themes of the Bible, the redemption of sinful man. Now, we know that this was preordained, that this was planned. And another way we know it, because the angel Gabriel, he comes to Joseph, who's Mary's husband, and he tells her that, that this, this Messiah is going to save people. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 on the screen says, She will bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, by the way, which means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, how does Jesus save his people? He dies for them. He gives his life willingly for them. And this is where Jesus is going. He's deliberately moving to the crucifixion. Understand that the crucifixion is less than six months away now. And he's moving towards the cross. And so his death, first it was voluntary, but second, why it's so important, is his death was sacrificial and it was substitutionary. He sacrificed himself for us. Now again, he indicates that because he says, I laid down my life. Verse 11, 15, 17, and 18. He lays down, he gives his life. It tells us that Jesus died not only for others on their behalf, but also it means in their place. He's a substitute. And we needed one who was perfect without any spot or blemish. As John the Baptist said, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was perfect without blemish, without sin. And the scripture is clear that sin, there is a debt, there is a wage. There is something that has to be paid because of sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this, this debt to sin, either the Lord pays for it or you pay for it. And the death is both physical and spiritual death, total separation in hell from God. Jesus came to pay that debt. He came to sacrifice himself as a substitute in place of you and I for the debt of sin. Your sin put the Lord on the cross. My sin put him on the cross. And he willingly gave himself. I think the best verses that really tell us in clarity what this looks like is in Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 9, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 
For the sinner, there is judgment, there is wrath. But Christ willingly, sacrificially, and substitutionary gives himself freely, and he takes the hit for us. He experiences God's wrath on the cross, but he pays for our sin fully. His death is voluntary, it's sacrificial, it's a substitute. But there's a third reason. His death was because he loves us, his great love and care for the sheep. Jesus has a deep affection for his sheep. He cares for us as a good shepherd should. Now look at verses 12 and 13. What Jesus does is he shows you the opposite side of those who don't care. He does a contrast. Verses 12 and 13, it says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees a wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and he scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he's not concerned about the sheep. I think the picture there is that doorkeeper we saw in verses 1 through 10 in the sheepfold that was in the village. And so he's in charge of guarding the door. And what a thief or a robber would do, they'd go around some other way and try to get over a wall. Well, understand, the doorkeeper's probably like minimum wage. He's making like 10 bucks, right? And so he's like, they're not my sheep. And so when a thief or robber gets into the fold, he's going to say, I'm not giving up my life for that sheep. That's the idea that he's saying here. He's just a hired hand. He's getting a little bit of money to watch over the sheep at night, but hey, don't ask me to give my life for them. Why? Because it says very clearly, he doesn't care for the sheep. But the Lord, as the good shepherd, deeply cares. The hired hand, when trouble comes, what does he do? He flees. What does the Lord do when trouble comes? He runs to. He pulls in. He protects. Now, earlier, Jesus had called these religious leaders, he called them thieves and robbers. They want to hurt the sheep. But here he calls them a hired hand. They could care less about the sheep. But Jesus deeply cares. He cares for his own. He cares for those who the Father has given him. And this love and care as a good shepherd that Jesus has, it's expressed very clearly by John in John chapter 13. John said this, he said, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. I love that. He loved them to the end. That means all the way into eternity. He has a deep affection and care for those that are his. And again, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, he demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, that's like while you're in the middle of your sin, he died for you. The love that Christ offered, it's offered broadly to all. It's given as a gospel call, but it's only for his sheep, those that respond. Now, we've seen that Jesus' death is voluntarily sacrificial, substitutionary. He did it because of his great love and care. And lastly, it's personal. It's personal. He loves you personally. He loves me personally. It's specific. It's for His sheep, those that He knows. Do you understand that your sin put Him there? My sin put Him on the cross. But His death is sufficient for me. I need to take ownership of that. He's my Lord, my Savior. He's not Savior of the whole world, general. 
It becomes very personal with Jesus. Are you his sheep? Now, he said in verses 14 and 15, it becomes clear, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And my own, they know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. As this speaks of relationship and and unity and, and intimacy, he says in verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. That, that word know is, is the same kind of word know that you see in the Old Testament that says Abraham knew his wife. It's, it's the most intimate way that a man can know a woman. It doesn't have any sexual overtones here, but it's, it's saying that, that the deepest way that you could know somebody, that's the way that Jesus knows his own. It's deeply personal. It's deeply relational. And there's this, this love relationship between the son and the father that's expressed in his people, in his sheep, because he's given us his spirit, and his spirit dwells within us. Now, this was made clear right before Jesus went to the cross in one of his final prayers in John 17. John 17, 25 and 26, he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. How does that happen? It's the work of God's Spirit. The love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father is also in you and is by the very presence of His Spirit in you. It's very personal. It's very specific to you and Him. And when you trusted in Christ, you became a part of this forever family. Jesus cares for me. Jesus cares for you. And you know what blows my mind? Even with all my flaws, even with all the stupid and idiotic things that I do and that I say, and I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus paints this picture with a shepherd and a sheep because sheep, they're not that smart. And sheep need a lot, and I mean a lot of help. They're helpless. And so Jesus paints this picture of himself as the good shepherd and the people as the sheep. Why? Because we're flawed. We're broken individuals. We do not have it all together. And that means that everyone can come. You think, oh, God can never accept me. I'm just not good enough. Well, join the club. We're broken. Matter of fact, one writer explained it like this. He says, did you know, for instance, that a sheep will often get stuck on its back like a turtle? so that it's unable to move, and in warm weather, within a few hours, it'll die? Or did you know that a sheep is undiscriminating in the choice of food that it will eat? It will eat poisonous roots and weeds. Or did you know that sheep are helpless in the face of predatory animals? They get so terrified, in fact, that they will simply stand there without uttering a bleat and let them kill them. And on and on I could go. And by the way, did you know that sheep are prone to wander? Even though... As the good shepherd, Jesus provides everything that we need, water, pasture. He puts a a fence around us to guard us. We wiggle our way out. And so as a good shepherd, he calls to his own. And if we won't listen, he uses a staff or a rod, doesn't he? And he brings us back into the fold. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. It's kind of like the song that we just heard. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's like Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, he said, 
We're all like sheep who've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, what? To fall upon Him. Jesus is the the good shepherd. He's constantly coming and helping His wandering sheep, His straying sheep, back into the fold. I've been reading a lot of stuff about sheep (laughs) over the past couple weeks. I came across this article. It was interesting. Very common now for, for sheep herders, what they do is they regularly, usually about three or four times the year, they have to dig these big pits. And in the pits, they have to put this antiseptic fluid because sheep, they get parasites, not only on their food and on, I mean, on their wool and in their skin, they get them in their eyes, in their ears, in their nostrils. And so what they have to do, they literally have to take them one by one and a shepherd will take that sheep and puts it under the water. And that water is full of antiseptic fluid, and they just hold it there, and they have to keep them under. Well, for a sheep, I mean, you get terrified and frightened. You're thinking, why would my good shepherd ever do that to me? And they get very frightened thinking that the shepherd's trying to harm them. But the shepherd's not trying to harm them. He's trying to help them. He's doing what's good. And there was a Christian writer that was watching this take place, and this is what they said. They said, I... I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment that I was getting from the shepherd that I trusted. And he didn't give me any hint of explanation. But as I watched those struggling sheep, I thought, if only there was some way to explain to them why he was doing what he was doing. But such knowledge is too wonderful for them. Such knowledge is too high for them to understand. And sometimes Jesus, as the good shepherd, what he does, the very best thing for you is some of the pain and difficulties that you're facing because it's building into you a a resolute faith in him as the good shepherd. And how do we know he's the good shepherd? Because he literally gave his life. He gave it all for you. First thing, Jesus, as the first shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. So what makes him the good shepherd? There's a second thing. As the good shepherd, he gathers his sheep from different folds. Jesus, as the good shepherd, he, he gathers his sheep from different folds. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the church is the most diverse place anywhere in the world. People from every race, every tongue, every nation, you name it, they're all included into the church. It's unique. And verses 16 and 18 says, But I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, And I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Now, Jesus begins with, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Now, if you remember verses 1 through 10, there was the fold of Israel, and we talked about that last week. Jesus had come to His own, and His own did not receive Him. That's Israel. But within that fold, there were some that were His, some that were not. Jesus right here in verse 16, He's saying that He has sheep from other folds. They're not of this fold, which is Judaism. They're from another fold. And here Jesus teaches that there are other folds which many more sheep are going to be called. They're going to be called out of the Roman culture, out of Greek. There's going to be a Mission Viejo fold. He's going to call his sheep out of it. 
And these sheep have been given to him by the Father. It's very interesting. If you look here, he says, I must bring them. They will hear my voice. This is divine sovereignty again. In God's mind, he knows his sheep. He calls them by name. It's part of God's divine plan. God knew he was calling the Gentile sheep. He was calling them into the fold. It's interesting because Jesus speaks in the present tense. He literally says he knows his own. He says, I have, present tense, other sheep. Now, if he didn't know his own, he would have said, if they were not, he'd have to say, I will have other sheep or I hope to have other sheep. But no, he says, I have, present tense, other sheep than these that are in the fold of Judaism. But that's not the expression he uses. I have. Now, I think the disciples at this point, they're clueless. They have no idea that God is going to go outside of Judaism. They think that the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. They don't understand that very soon, as soon as Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to heaven, boom, the birth of the church is going to start and Gentiles are going to be brought in. But because of Jesus and His divine nature, He knows that. Jesus has many other sheep and He knows them and He will pursue them and He will bring them into the fold. And from God's side, He already knows those sheep. Now, Paul spoke about this in Acts 18. In Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, and also verses 9 and 10, you see this. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly teaching to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then in verses 9 and 10, it says, The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have, present tense, many people in this city. That was before Paul went and preached to the Gentiles in Corinth. But God already knows his sheep. So look at Jesus here in verse 16. He uses both present tense and also future tense. He says, I have other sheep present, which are not of this fold. That's also present tense. Those sheep, remember it was Judaism, but those that are not of the fold are going to be the Gentile. And I must bring them, and they will hear my voice. That's all in the present tense. But then he starts to speak in the future tense. And he says, and they will hear my voice. That's future and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's also a future. And by the way, that includes you and me. We'll be included into that flock. So the Lord knows his sheep, it's present tense. But he will proclaim the gospel. That's future tense. I see this very clearly with Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, and he was a religious man. And he gave alms to the Jews. And he prayed a lot. And then what God does is God sends an angel to speak to him. And he tells Cornelius, he says, Cornelius, send a couple of your servants and go find a man by the name of Peter. He's in Joppa. And have him and have him come here and share with me this good news. Well, at that same time, Peter's in Joppa. And he kind of has a vision. And he has a vision of a sheep coming down. And there's different animals on there that Jews are not supposed to eat. They're not kosher. 
But three different times, God tells them, eat, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. And as soon as that dream's over, Peter wakes up and there's a knock on the door. And those servants from Cornelius come and they take him to Cornelius. And what does Peter do? He, He preaches the gospel and Cornelius and his whole household are saved. Present tense, God knows Cornelius is a sheep. Future tense, Peter has to go, preach the gospel, and they're saved. It's that inner working of God, divine sovereignty, man's responsibility, both together. Now, Jesus has been given the authority to lay down his life and to take it up. That means he's talking about rising again. And this idea shows two attitudes of relationship between Jesus Christ and the Father, and it's love and obedience. Jesus loves the Father, so what does He do? He obeys. And by the way, that's the same kind of relationship we're to have with our Lord, love and obedience. If you know Him, obey Him. And the evidence that you know Him is that you do obey Him. That same relationship is with us and the Lord that the Lord has with the Father. Now, He's the one that has the authority to take and take up his life, to give his life, and to take it up. Now, if you remember, it was Pilate that told Jesus that he had the authority to either keep Jesus alive or not. But Jesus responds in John nineteen eleven, you have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. For this reason, he delivered me, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus has the authority to take his life, has the authority to raise up again the resurrection. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he can give his life and rise it up again. As a matter of fact, when when Judas came to, to take Jesus with the crowd and take him in to have him tried and crucified, this was Jesus' statement to the crowd that was there. He says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father in Matthew 26? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. If Jesus didn't want to do what the Father had commanded him, he could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't, did he? He willingly gave his life, willingly surrendered himself. Jesus always honors and obeys the Father. As a matter of fact, in John 6, 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but I'll raise it up on the last day. As with everything that Jesus did, he did in love and obedience to the Father, faithful to the end. And so this is why Jesus says again here in verses 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one's taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. Jesus willingly died so that he could rise again. No one took his life from him. Not a person, not a ruler, not a judge, not a demon. He gave his life. Why? So that he could offer you life. He had to pass through death so that he could rise. And you have to pass through death in him so you can rise. He willingly rose again. And I read a really interesting passage in William Barclay's commentary. And he talks about a missionary. His name is Egerton Young. And he was the first missionary to the Red Indians in Saskatchewan, Canada. And he had gone to the Indians with a message of the Father who loves them. 
And there was a chief over the Indians, and when he heard the message, he said, when you spoke of the great spirit just now, did I hear you called him our father? And the missionary said, yes, I did. We know him as father because he revealed to us as father by Christ. This is a very new and sweet to me, said the chief. We never thought of the great spirit as a father. We heard him in the thunder, and we saw him in the lightning, in the tempest, and the blizzard, and we were afraid. So when you tell us that the great spirit is our father, this is a very beautiful thing to us. The chief paused, and then as though kind of the glory was breaking over him, he asked the missionary, did you say that the great spirit is also your father? Yes, I did, said Young. And the chief said, did you say that he is the father of the Indians as well? Yes, I did, said the missionary. Then the old chief said, as if light had suddenly come, and he said, then you and I are brothers. And this is what the missionary said. Yes, we are brothers. If you'll believe on the one that the father has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And the chief and the tribe did believe. And Jesus suddenly has sheep from a different fold in Saskatchewan, Canada, these Indians, and they were added into the fold that day. Two things we've seen. Jesus has the good shepherd. He gathers his sheep from different folds. Jesus has the good shepherd. He gives his life for the sheep. And here's the last one, a little different than the first two. Jesus, as the good shepherd, he brings division. Jesus, as the good shepherd, he brings division. Jesus, as the good shepherd, he brings healing and comfort to those that are his. But he also brings a sword. He brings divide. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon, and he is insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So we see here in verse 19 that a division occurred among them. But guys, as we've been going through the book of John, we've seen a ton of division. Whenever Jesus gets up and preaches, whenever he begins to speak, what happens? There's a divide amongst the people. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life. Whenever you share the name of Jesus, what happens? Some believe and some won't believe. There's a divide. And just as a way of reference, we'll look at a few of the divides that have already happened. In John 6, verse 52, when Jesus said that he was the bread from heaven, a divide occurred among the people. It says, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? There was this arguing, this divide between the people. They also did not understand that he was talking about his resurrection and the celebration of communion after he died, to be celebrating with the bread and the juice or the wine, the vine. There was also a divide in John chapter 7 where Jesus says to them, If anyone is thirsty to come to me to drink, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life. And in John chapter 7, verse 43, it says a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And we also know the divide happened again when he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. In John 9, we saw that two weeks ago. It says some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So whenever Jesus is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, it offers life, but it also brings division. Because when you preach Jesus, 
It is truth. Some will respond in faith. Others will literally blaspheme the truth. Now, Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew. And I want, I want to go through this with you very slowly and kind of talk this through because they're very serious words. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, this is what Jesus says. He says, Therefore, if anyone confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Very, very strong words from our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that faith is not a casual faith. You do not take Jesus on and add Him in like a hobby into your life. He doesn't become part of your life, a little compartment over to the side, and you pull Him out like a lucky rabbit's foot when you need Him. He is life, and He is Lord, and He he calls you to fully respond, to fully surrender all to Him as that. And this idea about confessing Him before men, He's talking both your life, what do people see, and your words, what do they hear? Do the people you know and you love, do they see Christ in you, and do they hear Christ from you? Because your life is that testimony, it confesses who you are before others. And your words, do they bring forward the gospel of peace? He did not come to this earth to bring peace on earth. He came to this earth to bring peace, peace with God, that we can be right with Him, reconciled, be at peace with Him. This is why Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring that peace to us, and some will believe and respond and be saved, and others will not and they'll die in their sin. And you see the divide right there in verses 20 and 21. He said, many of them were saying, he has a demon, he's insane, why do you listen to him? But others were saying, these are not the sayings of one who's demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? You have two. Some are hard-closed. And if you remember, I think it was Matthew 13, they even said the very works that he did were the works of the devil. And it was at that point, Jesus said they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And also it was interesting, at that point, he started preaching in parables so they would not understand. Judgment had already fallen. But there are some that are open. The heart is still soft. They're willing to listen. Do you believe? Is he yours? Because there's no other way where a man and a woman can be saved. And Jesus had already said in verse 15 that the sheep hear His voice and they respond 
to his voice. That is the preaching of the gospel. That is the gospel message. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. People must hear the truth to respond to the truth. And what we preach is the cross, the cross of Christ. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, when I come to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message that we preach. That is the message that breaks through the hard heart and offers life. I don't know if any of you listened to Greg Laurie, but I was listening to him this week as I was driving, and he said something that just caught me. It kind of arrested me. He said, a number of studies have been done, and it's been determined that the majority of unbelievers that come into the church and are saved are brought by brand new believers. In fact, it's 90% of those that are new believers in the church come from other new believers. Only 10% come from what Cashin would call the old crusties the people that are mature and supposed to be reaching them because they know more and have been walking with Him longer. What testimony is that? Have we become too comfortable? Because we have a message. And the message is that we have a good shepherd that lays down His life for the sheep. And if you'll preach it, some will believe and some won't. But the message has to be preached. The question for us this morning is when that divide happens, which side are you on? Do you believe? Or do you not believe? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the word that Jesus gives that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. I thank you, Lord, that it's expressed that he is a good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, Lord, he cares and he loves and he tends to his sheep. And all of us that know you, Lord, we confess how faithful you have been. This walk has not been easy, but, Lord, it's been good because you are good. And so as your people, Lord, we worship you. And we thank you. And I would pray even now, Lord, that you would move by your spirit as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.